Smartcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Tokens Podcast. I'm Iris, co-founder and CEO of Tokens, and I'm here with my co-host, Jeff, advisor to Tokens. Jeff, what are you looking forward to today? Oh, my goodness. We're talking to Dr. Laura Jana, um, and I'm excited to hear um, parenting tips, frankly, uh, because I'm trying to you know, prep three little maniacs for the real world, and uh, I need all the help I can get. Yes, we do. As parents with little ones, I think I'm always looking for new help, new advice, and uh, the wisdom from someone with your incredible background, Dr. Laura Jana. We'll call you Dr. Laura. Dr. Laura is an advisor to tokens, a pediatrician, and social entrepreneur. Uh, Dr. Laura, I understand that you are also a consultant um, for academics, nonprofits, for-profits, different companies that are working and operating in the juvenile space. Um, They, like tokens, are very lucky to have you. For our audience, if you're interested in learning more about Dr. Jana, you can see her TED Talk available online or check out her books, a number of them that she's written, all on skills that children need to thrive and succeed in the future, this world that we're helping to build with tokens. So welcome, Dr. Laura. Oh, it's a great uh, great to join you. And Jeff, we're off to a good start because you actually said three maniac children, but laughed while you said it because that changes the direction we need to take the conversation for, for parenting purposes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I can see that. I only half chest. They are, they are actually maniacs. Uh, no, no, they're not. They're wonderful. I have, uh, to be clear, a seven, an eight-year-old. I get confused all the time. An eight-year-old, a five-year-old, and a one-year-old that just started walking yesterday. Oh wow! Yeah, excellent. Wow, magical moment. It, 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 you know what? It's the third time we've gotten to to witness the miracle, and it is. It just gets better with age. I gotta tell you, like you drop everything. It's so important. You hit those milestones that really mean something. You know. And it just touches you in all the right places and you remember why it's all worth it and what what your purpose is here on earth. And um, thank you for allowing me to share that with you guys today. Well, you know, I got my start. I'm obviously, I'm a pediatrician and I come from the hard sciences, you know, cellular, molecular biology and things. But I actually jumped into the parenting world really early because I got to work with Dr. Spock while he was still alive. And, um, and I, first of all, love the parenting stories. Like I love to hear the real world side of all of what I'm interested in. Um, but I've always thought there should be something on the developmental milestones of parenthood because there are those moments and it doesn't matter how many times you go through it as a parent. I have three children as well. Um, go through it yourself, but I enjoy, I get to hear everybody's milestone moments, um, in parenthood. Um, and I enjoy them almost as much as my own kids doing it. So that's great. <laughs> that's really uh, interesting. Now that's the first time I've ever heard that. Like there, there are, right. Are there, are there defined milestones? Do you, can you well, like, no. name a couple? No, they're not defined except in my head, and I've meant to write them down. But I have some, and I, I tend to like to toss in some humor in all of this because I, you know, part of my concern in being seen as a parenting expert is that you know you figure this out as you go along. There's no one right answer for a lot of things. I mean, there's health and safety kind of right answers. Um, but there's a lot of this sort of get a feel for it. And then if it doesn't work, and again, it's stuff that we we talk about in lots of contexts, but it's iterating as you go. So adding some humor tends to take the pressure off of parents because I think parents are under a lot of pressure. If you want a couple of examples from my own personal experience, um, since I had three kids in three and a half years, I thought one was, for example, when it's time, you know, it's bath time and you say, good, go take one. 
right? Like <laughs> you don't have to do it yourself or I'm hungry, good, you know where the kitchen is. So busy. And then the other one that I have very kind of ingrained in my mind, I like to travel and I do a fair, but I didn't travel as much when my kids were young um, unless they were with me. And, you know, with three kids plus my husband, with the five of us, the first time that my husband and I found ourselves sitting in the row behind the three children, so we had the row to ourselves, um, the flight attendant came up and said, are these your children? And um, and I said, why? And she said, oh, because they're so well behaved. And then I was like, then yes, they are mine. But it was one of those parenting you know, milestones where you actually get to sit in a row by yourself and read a book or snooze or something and let them work things out for themselves. That's so a good those, one. Those, again, some lighthearted and some. Yeah. You know, yeah. That, that first night when you go to bed and you sleep and you wake up and it's morning and you haven't woken up in the middle of the night, you're like, what? What has just happened? Oh, Jeff, you know, we could get off on a tangent about sleep and all sorts of things. The beauty of this conversation and talking about things like digital media, social media, the metaverse, um, is that it really draws on all of what we already know is sort of good parenting, the science of how children learn and thrive. And what we really, and again, setting the kind of the groundwork um, for listeners is, what we really need to do is apply what we already know, right? And then say, now what do we do in the context of a new environment, new opportunity that if we're intentional about it has, you know, clearly um, defined opportunities, but being conscious about what we do so we don't fall into some of the pitfalls of using technology and jumping into the metaverse and all these things that people hear about. It's probably the most commonly asked question I get from parents in the last five, seven years is about digital media use, technology, social media, et cetera. Yeah, it's it's a question. How does this new these new technologies? How do they benefit children? And how, on top of that, are are they really in the, a child's best interest or a family's best interest? I think these are really tough questions, and I'm I'm, I'm sure very unique to different digital applications and Im- I- implementations. Sure, and we can go broad first, Iris, because if we step back, you know, it's sort of the um, unless somebody convinces me otherwise, technology is here to stay, right? Like we're not going, I keep saying, and I give a lot of talks on, as you mentioned, I gave a TED talk in Northern India um, about what skills children need to succeed that seems to have gotten a lot of attention and, and traction. But what I do is I back up and I say, unless you convince me that we're going back to like an agrarian era or an industrial age, which no one even tries to do, um, then technology's here, right? As a, as a good friend of mine who actually is a pediatrician at Harvard, very involved in children and media and technology use named Michael Rich. Um, but as he likes to say, um, technology is like the air we breathe, right? So it's not like we can just say, I just want to get rid of it. I don't want to use it. I don't want to pay attention to it. But, you know, one of the things he said to me once before is you just got to be careful kids don't end up breathing from the tailpipe right? I mean, there's the good and the bad. So backing it up and saying in the world our children will live in, which is a framing I also like to use a lot because things are changing quickly enough that what we all grew up with, I don't care how old anyone listening is, what we grew up with is not going to be the same thing that our children's are, children are going to be facing when they enter the workforce or when they're members of their community and society. And so kind of trying to do that future thinking, it's going to include technology. So the first thing is it, it really isn't something we can ignore. And then it's important, you know, there's a, coming as a pediatrician, and I've spent a lot of years as a, I've, I've served as a spokesperson for the American Academy of Pediatrics. They've published a couple of my books on newborns and healthy nutrition and things. Um, as a pediatrician, you know, we all take a, a vow of do no harm. And we oftentimes are seen as sort of, I always say for really dating myself, the danger Will Robinson, right? Like look at what the potential harms are. Actually, now the American Academy of Pediatrics is really trying to sort of be in the lead, not necessarily take the lead, but join others in the lead, lead of trying to say what opportunities, what are, you know, they've just formed a new center of excellence for children and media and social media use and, and children's mental health. So that's where what opportunities are there? Well, if we apply the principles of how children learn best, um, we can look at very specific things. A report just came out from Brookings Institute with um, Kathy Hirsch-Pasek and Roberta Golinkoff and several people, really high-level researchers in this space. And it's clear, we like learning to be active, engaging, um, iterative, joyful, meaningful. Okay, so like there's these core principles 
And Iris, I see you nodding because the idea, this, this paper that they wrote about this new era with the metaverse and education of children um, is we need to be mindful in how we design apps and how we introduce technology to children in the context of education systems, parenting, learning in general. I have my little version of the report all highlighted and with my notes all over the PDF. And I loved this concept. This one really just knocked me over the head of joyful, right? We talk a lot about fun and sometimes we even take that to to playful, but I think that that's often overused and it's different inherently from joyful. This idea that an experience, digital experience can be joyful is, it was really revolutionary to me. Right. And, you know, one of the interesting things, because I've spent a lot of time recently, um, you know, I, I created my own sort of simpler framework of the skills children will need to succeed. Um, and uh, in addition to that TED Talk, it is in a book called The Toddler Brain, Nurture the Skills Today, It Will Shape Your Child's Tomorrow. But the earliest and sort of most foundational two skills are the me skills and the we skills. And me is that sort of self-awareness, self-control, impulse control, focus, attention, but it's also identity. And then the we skills are the, for children's terms, it's the playing well with others, but all of those things about empathy and perspective taking and things. And once you kind of look at those skills, which kind of fit the formal definition of emotional intelligence, sort of on the adult and workforce um, world side of things, um, you start to realize that there is a difference, like you said, which people don't always think about between just having fun and being joyful right? And that having purpose and things doesn't, it means, it doesn't mean that it has to be easy, right? Like fun doesn't equate with easy and it doesn't mean that you can't make mistakes. What we almost always see, I mean, we find some joy in some solitude or a walk on the beach, but a lot of our joy is derived from how we connect with others. And the trick for the purposes of this discussion is to say, how do we help enhance that sense of social connectedness when ironically, connecting virtually and using technology does not inherently get you a sense of connectedness. Sometimes it gives you more of a sense of isolation if you are using, whether it's apps or social media, that isn't intentionally designed to support those connections, both to other people and to the real world. Jeff, I know you had some in, some questions and interests about this, the IQ yeah. idea. Yeah, so building off of that, what you just started there and this, the skill sets, um, you know, the kids need to acquire today to be successful tomorrow. I was telling Iris before um, this call that I remember in when I was in middle school, probably the sixth or seventh grade, we used to have assemblies and the, the whole school would get on the bleachers in the gym and there'd be a public speaker. And I remember the, the person that came and spoke to us and told the whole room, shocked the whole room by saying, you know, when you grow up, like 80% of you are going to have jobs that don't even exist today. And all of us are kind of like, sure. And oh my goodness, is it true? Absolutely. It's true. And it, apparently that's just true for every single generation in the, you know, since the year Gimmel. And, um, I, I was watching your Ted talk and heard you uh, say something similar at the beginning of it. And, and I thought, okay, well, that's interesting. Here we are again. What what do we do? What are the skills? How, if we don't know the jobs that are going to exist, how can we prepare our children for them today? And I think it, yeah, that goes sure. along. It's, it's a fundamental question. And you know, what I, what I like to do, I'll give the very short version is say, here's some context. So you don't think that I just came up with some cute little packaged framework of skills, but it's trendy, you know, sort of like pet rocks and tomorrow it's not going to be so popular anymore. Here's what it's based on. The world is changing very quickly. Before the pandemic, I used to talk about Moore's Law and the doubling of the amount of information that could fit on a silicon chip driving technology-fueled exponential change. That's a mouthful, but basically not linear predictable change, but like shoot up out of control change. And the idea being that anything or anyone or any industry or sector that's dependent on technology is starting to change exponentially fast. That was before the pandemic. I spent a fair number of minutes explaining exponential curves to people who might not otherwise um, ever have learned them, much less remember them. Now I say, think of what we saw during the pandemic and the exponential spread of a virus. So that what I like to do is say that, you know, in an exponential curve, you go from two to four to six uh, to eight to 16 because you're doubling, right? Um, and that seems like small numbers. And if you're on a really big graph, it can go upwards pretty slowly, right? Like it's just looking like a linear. And then all of a sudden it shoots up 
I don't know if you remember that part of the um, COVID curve when everyone was talking about the R naught or, you know, but basically it's how fast things are spreading. That lays the foundation for rapid change. And then the other thing, which now, because the pandemic is all the more apparent to people, is the world is very globally complex and globally connected. And that if in those two contexts you say, okay, so what skills become really important? For example, knowing the right answer, which I always say was great for me in medical school because I had a somewhat photographic memory. So if someone said, what are the top 10 causes of some very esoteric disease? I could look at, I could see the page in the textbook in my mind and I could say all 10 of them. Now, if I say to anyone listening to me, do you have a smartphone? And they do, they know as much as I did. Knowing the right answer becomes far less important than you know, asking good questions, for example. So that's one of the skills, what I called why skills, um, is being able to ask good questions has way more value today than just having the right answer. And then just having the right answer first, best, fastest, and which parent posted on social media first so all the other parents can feel bad about themselves, right? So you can see it goes both ways on that one. In terms of globally uh, complex and connected, I think it makes a really good case for the we skills and the sort of ability to understand, empathize, you know, take the perspective of others, which for those in the audience who um, do this sort of equivalent on the adult side is design thinking, right? You start with empathy. If you're going to design anything for anybody, kind of helps to first be able to kind of put yourself in their frame of mind. What do they need? What do they want? What means, what, you know, what's important to them? And in the, in the sense of a globally connected world, it means, you know, I spend a lot of time, my time talking to um, business leaders about what's coming and the future of work and all those things. But I say, you know, gone are the days, not that they don't exist now in some places, but looking ahead of everyone's going to work 30 years in the same job at the same building, going to the same water cooler and talking to the same people, right? And at most, you have to get along with the people who live on the other side of town who might drive away to come to your office. Um, now it's you have to work across cultures, continents, religions, you know, all these different things, much less sectors, right? I mean, even getting health and education to work together with shared language, shared understanding, shared goals and things. And if people don't see that being a necessity, then I would suggest take anything that that we see these days, like the spread of infectious diseases, about cyberbullying and challenges on the internet, about financial systems. It, you're not going to solve the problem in your own community, right? Lots can be done, but we need to work together across all these realms. And that's the framing I use to say that the skills we want tend to be, you know, I, I know, Iris, you mentioned the IQ skills. That was the name I gave the set of more technical content substance skills like reading, writing, arithmetic, right? It's literacy, numeracy, financial literacy. It includes coding. So those technical skills are very, and content skills are very important still, but they make up about one third of the list of skills that the World Economic Forum came up with in, a, in an education report um, several years back saying, which skills will our children need to succeed in today's world? The other two thirds, I would say this conveniently align with rapid change and globally complex and connected. And those are those skills of, you know, questioning and curiosity and adaptability and the ability to fail and adapt. And, and I like to give the whole list from even the adult world, which is communication, collaboration, teamwork, adaptability, resilience, grit, perseverance, emotional intelligence, all these things that we hear. Like You won't be able to watch the news tonight without hearing those words. You won't be able to watch a sporting event without hearing those words popping up. Um, now the question remains, how do we design for them, cultivate them, not squelch them as parents, knowing that their foundation develops really early? I mean, like I'm talking the zero to five range, which often is left out of the conversation when we talk about what our kids learn in educating children. Wow. And when you talk about this, I'm reminded of what we were talking about just just before this in this conversation is these are the this is the world that the children the children are going to be facing. Right. But there's always the flip side of that, of how parents are adapting to this world as well. Right. Yeah. One of my simplest my simplest expressions, I didn't come up with it, but I think is this, one of the simplest ones is to say we're only just entering an era where this isn't true. We all are digital immigrants and our children are digital natives. And that poses a unique challenge, right? Like we're in that transition point. Now this next generation of parents were born into the internet and to cell phones and things, but we're only just getting there, 
right? Um, and that means for parents, when you start talking about things like the metaverse, that's why I start out my talks by saying, you can't just say, mm, yeah, no, thank you. Like, don't need it, not going to need to go there. Because for me, what compels me and why I like to work with, you know, and, and advise companies like Tokens is because I'd like to have a seat at the table of being intentional, um, but recognizing I do think this is the direction the world's heading in. And if that's true, then we sure would like it to go in a very positive, take advantage of the opportunity direction and not stumble into the downside without having been aware that there was one, right? We don't want to have the unintended consequences that we have seen with the internet and with social media and things. The yep. tailpipe. Yeah. Yep. And we, we're really trying to get ahead, right? And I think that the 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 companies that have these ambitions and that um, want to be intentional about creating a, a good, a positive, and a very high-functioning environment for the future, the digital future of our kids, you know, one of the key things things that they need to do, we need to do is to get ahead of these concerns, get ahead of the the parents worrying about kids breathing from the tailpipe and really engender trust with these families and, and uh, that are moving forward. You know, Jeff and I talk a lot about how this unique position we are as exennials or millennial cusps, where we we were adults before we had cell phones and just how, you know, we're very, we're, we're just like treading that line of being the digital immigrants to use your parlance. Right. And yet, you know, the digital immigrants and the digital natives are also, at least in the tokens environment, um, approaching these new, new technologies together. They're, they're new to, to both of us, even though we come from, we come from different frameworks or different paradigms, right? They're still new to us. And so really, we do see what we're building at, to at Tokens and a lot of these new emergent technologies as being um, the, like we're talking about, um, like parent uh, kid books being parenting books in disguise. Yes. You know, this, this is, a, this is a, this, Tokens is a kid's app that really is a shame-free way for parents to learn about Web3 technologies. I, I'm bringing up a lot of different concepts here, but I think that- No, I, but I, I, just, I love it. I was, you know, I'm laughing because I, I just I just had a conversation yesterday with someone. I said, oh, well, I actually wrote a book on potty training, right? I said, well, actually, it was a children's book, but I embedded all the parenting information in it, right? Like it it was the, and, and what I found, because I've actually written quite a few children's books, um, brushing teeth, potty training, getting, you know, school readiness called jumping into kindergarten, all these things. What I find is that, first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge early literacy advocate. When we want to talk about what children learn and when they learn, I always say, you don't get to choose when or what they learn. They're learning all the time. And as we shift from this idea of, formal education where it's between set hours, sitting in a desk, facing the front of the classroom. We are moving far beyond that. We're moving much earlier. We're moving outside those four traditional walls of the education system. But early literacy, you know, recognizing that that starts again, zero to five, and that what they learn, but their children's books are so non-threatening right? Like that's what we associate, getting back to the joyful part, with fun, engaged social connection. I mean, I can remember my the sound of my mother's voice. She's 85 now. I can remember her reading me um, Rudyard Kipling's The Jungle Book. That was her favorite book, right? So first of all, she's sharing something she liked, but she did the voices of each of the different animals. My mom doesn't tend to do that. Like she's not like the let's do cutesy voices together, She's pretty academic and serious, but, but I can remember the voices in my head now and I'm in my fifties, right? So the idea that it's a shared experience, that's what we get at. In the same way, what you said, you hit on something really important for people who are doing the research around technology and apps and metaverse, which is this idea of how do we build, intentionally build into the design connection you get some parent guidance, supervision, gradually letting back, but having some, you know, protections, which is which is fits in the adult terminology of intelligent risk taking. You know, again, it doesn't have to be a risk, but you can go out and experiment in there. But you don't want children to have massive failure in a globally connected metaverse world, right? It's bad enough if it's just in the neighborhood. Um, so that idea and underlying all of that, what we find to your other, I'm tying all your points together here, is the trust part right? And that's where I have a lot of interest and I've been involved a lot of in the neuroscience. What I did with the toddler brain is I said, oh, by the way, so first of all, here's these skills, here's why they're important, bigger picture context. 
And oh, by the way, they all have their foundational development in the first five years. Not so sure those are the skills we're cultivating and really cool neuroscience to back it up. And what the neuroscience tells us is that, you know, it reinforces for anybody who wasn't really paying attention. We are absolutely social beings. Connection really matters. Again, the pandemic proved that to us. You know, what we what we needed, it's unfortunate when people talked about social distancing, what we needed was physical distancing, but wow, do people suffer with social distancing. And if we can achieve some degree of social connectedness in our apps, in our metaverse world, if we can bring what we do there back into how we connect better with a wider range of people, with a wider range of ideas and passions and things, um, and that's all going to be based on trust. Trust is where we make our connections, right? So... Yeah. yeah. That was a mouthful. Sorry. That was my soliloquy for you. <laughs> yeah. Very good. A lot jam-packed in there. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you referenced um, the importance of literacy in that, you know, first five years, uh, early childhood. How, does that also apply to f- like things like financial literacy and other like necessary world skills? When is the, the right time? You know, to- Jeff... I don't think you could bring up a subject that I couldn't walk you backwards looking further upstream in my innovation language, look further upstream, right? And where, if you start to train yourself to see what are the core components, how do you start to build them earlier? One of the expressions I like to use that is sort of analogous is in the world of STEM. So first of all, people got used to STEM as in science, technology, engineering, math, left out the arts despite the fact that what we really want is like creative thinking and all these things. So now steam. But if you look at how that has played out, you know, or how it played out starting 15 years ago, there was a concerted effort to get kids more of the STEM skills we wanted them to have. It was high school, like, you know, university saying, well, we'll start in high school and we'll start some feeder programs in high school. And then it got backed up to like seventh or eighth grade. And I keep saying why we think there's a switch that flips in seventh or eighth grade, eighth grade, I don't know, right? Like it's, I can show you elements of STEM when I, you know, I owned a childcare center here in Omaha, Nebraska for nearly 10 years. So this educational childcare center, and among other things, I put in a 60 foot garden. I said, give me any aspect of STEM and I'll show you how you can take a bunch of two and three year olds and introduce them to some of the core concepts that you're going to want them to, to know and to use. In much the same way, you know, financial literacy, I'm like, I can tell you how you take a garden and then you set up a, you know, um, a uh, farmer's market equivalent at the front of the school, recognizing that four-year-olds aren't so great with money, so everything's a quarter. But then I also could tell you how you could take that and they could then buy something and donate it or donate the money to a cause they cared about. And it didn't matter if it was point was they planted the plants, they grew them, they did the financial aspects. And by the way, for financial, simple stuff, like even teaching kids tally marks, you know, where you go one, two, three, four, cross five. Mm -hmm. Nobody starts teaching two and three-year-olds that except when you grow hundreds of cucumbers and they want to keep track and every class is picking them. So you want to keep track of the total. And all of a sudden the kids are doing tally marks in every classroom. Those sort of concepts our financial literacy at their sort of distilled simplest, and and you build upon them. I mean, all of education is supposed to be scaffolding, right? So financial literacy is one of those things that I do think is going to be really important for kids. I mean, I think it's really important for kids to learn early, but as we see the shift into virtual, right, um, in the virtual world, and, and, and if you look, we're already doing a lot of our banking, I mean, even traditional banking online and in virtual spaces and my kids all Venmo each other and, you know, PayPal is like my, you know, like I'm like outdated dinosaur if I suggest PayPal to somebody. Um, but that's where it's as important as anything else because we also want this to be meaningful. Remember that was one of the five core tenets of the uh, Brookings paper that I referenced was meaningful. The entire education system is having to do a rethink of we need to make sure that what we're teaching isn't just some static fact in a book and now I'm going to recite it to you. But how do we take what's meaningful to you and then build in the substance, whether it's, you know, financial literacy or literacy or history or whatever it might be. And that's where you see things from, you know, uh, project-based learning and maker spaces and things where you pick up on what what's kind of interesting and engaging and build around it. Financial is very easy to tie into that, I find, both in the virtual world and in the hands-on real world. Yeah, so maybe the part of the issue is us just thinking about these 
uh, different educational, these different topics very formally, very systematically when we're talking about some of the most simplest principles that we can put into practice, that kids can begin putting into practice. They can start, you're, you're the neuroscience expert, but, you know, creating the pathways, developing the muscles, just putting them into practice is that scaffolding, is the foundation of the scaffolding that we need to build so that they can later build off of those. Sure. And, and one of the goals and how we know the science of how children learn and what they learn and why they learn. Um, but this idea, and especially specific to the world of apps and, and to technology, um, is that you don't necessarily, you want something that's not distracting to kids, but it's, you know, it's, it's um, enhancing, right? And it's engaging. But you also ideally don't want to start from nothing, right? And toss them into like a whole new world, right? And expect them to do it. It's that same principle, which is really core to how we've already thought about children, whether it's parenting or teachers and things, which is don't start de novo, build on something that they already have. Now that may be an interest, right? A passion or an interest. I always use the example of my son who's now actually got a job in the financial world at uh, one of the big credit card companies. He's 25, but, um, but he's, he's, uh, he's always remembered as my kid who loved elephants. Anything to do with elephants and he was interested. I could tell you, and this was the early days of like you could, you know, eBay and you could search things online for stuff. And I was like, if I got him clothes that had elephants on them, which was not hard when he was like a baby, right? Cute little boys clothes with elephants on them. But try four, five, six, seven years old. Thank goodness that the search feature, you know, Google got much better and all these things in eBay because he would fight about what he wore unless it had elephants on it. In much the same way. So you start out with building on passions. You know, I could read any book as long as there was an elephant. Goodnight Moon has an elephant on the lower shelf on one of the left-hand pages. And now he was happy reading the book, right? Like that was all it took. Then you move forward on that. When you say as kids progress along, you take what they already know, for example, in the real world. You might build on it in the virtual space. And then part of the trick, the finesse to this is that they can see how it fits in into the bigger picture world both metaverse virtual world and hands-on real world um, that, that brings it to life. And that, I think, is sort of the holy grail of, of what those of us dealing in the um, technology world as it relates to children are trying for. But you're right, Iris, I said, it, you said it, I think, really well, which is a lot, I find a lot of people in the digital space, in the metaverse world, um, at least in the past, we're not so quick to bring in people who did not seem like they had any technology expertise. I don't presume to be a technology expert, but bringing in the expertise of what we already know. We don't have to throw away everything we know about parenting or what we know about education or what we know about how kids learn and what they like to learn. We don't have to throw that away. We just have to consider it in a new context. And that's kind of the skills I'm talking about in general is what happens when the world delivers you a new context or a new situation or a new opportunity Take what you know and adapt it. You have to be adaptable, right? And, and adapt it to something that we haven't done before. Hopefully this time we get it right in the sense of being intentional about it. I, I, this idea of the parent experience, the parallel parent and child experience, I feel like is a big theme in this conversation today. And it's really causing me to think about how parents and kids have different approaches to new technologies and how digital, one of the main differences maybe between digital immigrants and digital natives is that maybe digital natives don't know enough to be scared. And so how do we, how do we address the fear that parents might have approaching new technologies and how that might be different from a kid's first experience with something new? Well, and this is, I mean, it's a really good question because the first answer, bringing out the pediatrician do no harm in me, which is there are things to be feared right? So the first thing is, you know, when, when a parent is looking at whatever technology their children might be using, um, they need to think about the fact that you don't let kids go wander an unknown neighborhood when they're five, six, seven, eight, 10, 12 years old. I mean, I get questions of when do you let your kids go out trick-or-treating by themselves, and it's a parent of a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old. We have essentially done that with the internet and with social media. A lot of parents have done that with their children. And if you just think, would you ever do that in the you know, yeah. real world? It's like the ocean, right? You're, you're teaching your kid how to swim. You don't take them out to the middle of the sea and drop them in. Right. You, know, you, you have to measure, take those steps, 
go to the kiddie pool, dip your toe in the water first. And, and we need as parents to like be aware of where those kiddie pool environments are around the internet. Exactly. I was going to say, and what we also have to be careful of is that I'm really big on because of a lot of the work I've done, whether it was on the obesity prevention, dealing with the obesity pandemic or epidemic or whatever it is, is we can't put it all on parents to have to be able to do that as well. So as a company making sure, or somebody who's dealing in this space, making sure that those who are creating these environments are held to a standard that we would expect of, you know, kids, you know, a swimming pool, right? There's all sorts of safety designs mandated for those things, even if they're not mandated yet, right? This is the rapid change part of the conversation. Technology moves way faster than our policies, our regulations, our understanding, our research. And as we have, and we've got a lot of insights now, it's still on the shoulders of companies to build those things in to help both you know the children be safe, but help the parents understand and have control over that safety because, again, it's new to parents. So that's a really big one. So the first part is there are things to be afraid of, and you do need to pay attention to those things. Um, the other thing is the idea of you know fear and being afraid of failure. I like to use the example, and again, if you make it more of the extreme, like young children and running, I would hear an awful lot, both in my parenting and pediatric work, but also in my child care center where I had 200 kids at the center. And a lot of times I would hear parents say, don't run. And I thought, we've come to this point where we don't want our kids to run because we don't want them to fall. And it is an understandable parenting instinct to not want your children to fall and get hurt. But there's a trade-off. Like if you don't run, like there's a big trade-off there in terms of what you're giving up, right? So I always say, don't run on broken glass. Don't run across a you know six lane highway. Don't run across the street after a puppy. But to say don't run is sort of where the parenting kind of culture has has shifted, and now we're realizing that that takes away children's ability to explore and be curious. It takes away their ability to fail and adapt, or in the adult world, iterate in the face of rapid change. Right. The saying that really sums that up is: if you aren't allowed to fail you can't innovate, right? You can't be creative and try new things that you don't know if they're going to work if you're not allowed to fail. So creating safe spaces for kids to explore and be curious, I like it as you create the safe space and then you say, go for it, play. And for the younger the child, but even for older kids, the other part of this is there's a part of the brain that's sort of designated as, you know, foot on the gas, impulsive amygdala, right? It's your fight or flight response. It's your impulsive behaviors. And then there's your stop, think through your actions. Maybe that's not a good idea. What other choices do I have? What do I think is going to happen? That's the prefrontal cortex, okay? And here's the two times that those things where the foot on the gas is much stronger than the foot on the brake, right? And that's one, early childhood, and two, the teen years. Gets a little off balance there, which is where we see a lot of adolescent, you know, experimental behaviors that might be risky. And this is where you get the sex, drugs, and rock and roll concepts and things. But it's what our role, or the way I see our role as parents, is to help uh, help our children find and allow them to be in relatively safe spaces, so that they don't they don't experience massive failure, and 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 then let them experience things so that they can learn and adapt. Because if we tell them everything and we really ironclad enforcement of things, then they're not going to learn how to play in those spaces, whatever those spaces may be. And in the world of, you know, the virtual world, I still remember when, you know, Snapchat and Instagram and all that came out, right? And I thought to myself, based on what I just told you, anything with the word instant in it, right? And teenagers is a really concerning idea because it's one thing if you, like, you don't have the impulse control to not say something in front of your friends or at school or something. And you can get in some pretty big trouble depending if you called fire in a crowded theater, right? You, there's some hefty penalties for sometimes for those things, but not on the scale as we see on the internet where it can go viral and a million people can see it before your parents even get, get home, much less, you know, open something up or find out about it. And so that idea of building those environments where you don't have quite that exposure of you are now connected to the entire world and what you say that is normal expected behavior as children are learning to interact in the world and make mistakes and correct them. Ideally, you've got a safe space where it doesn't cause lead to massive failure or, you know, problems. 
Yeah. It sounds like dangers in the extreme, right? We don't say don't run because it's very limiting, but we also don't say run on broken glass. And if we can help create the safe space to run, to go and play and experiment and fail, that that's where they have the most opportunity. Children have the most opportunity to learn and maybe parents too because I'm just so fascinated with this parallel parent-child experience. And picking up on this playing, this sense of play, you know, we've often heard, I mean, I'm sure you've heard this idea of parents playing with their children. It doesn't have to be all the time. Kids don't always have to have their adult playing with them and guiding them through stuff. There's free play, there's, you know, guided play, but amongst peers and things. But if you look at the metaverse and the virtual world as our children's playground, right? They're going to spend time there. They're going to play there. Then how do we help them find the right places to play? Again, not in dangerous places, places they shouldn't be, whatever. That That's a really good way of thinking about it. And that we sometimes do play with them, which again, back to Michael Rich, who's at the um, Harvard Center on Media and Child Health. Um, but he often, you know, he, I always say he's kind of like a big kid himself. He, uh, he did a fellowship in adolescent medicine, but his kids, as they sit down and they, they get into stuff, he's like, he, or he talks to parents whose kids are sitting down and playing with things and they're really upset about it. And they don't think it's appropriate. He's like, well, have you played with them before? Do you know what it is they're doing? So that if you do have legitimate concerns, you actually can articulate it as opposed to coming off as the parent who just says, don't go there. And the kids can roll their eyes and think, well, you've never even gone to see and you don't understand. And there are things like Roblox and Minecraft and things where you get, there's all these things that people are watching for what does it do to enhance children's engagement and social connectedness and skills and things. You just need to experience it. So playing with your kids like you might on a weekend, whatever, play with your kids, see what it is they're doing in those spaces. And then when you both can feel comfortable about it, it's much better. Totally. I really relate to that one. And it's also fun and eye-opening in really interesting ways. Because when you're playing with your kid and you're playing, I don't know, you're doing a puzzle or you're playing on the jungle gym or you're playing catch, like I'm still the pro. I'm still teaching and I'm lowering my level. When I jump into Roblox with my eight-year-old, it flips, right? He's the pro and I'm the noob. And he's, it, it, he takes on a, a whole new atmosphere, right? And he feels great about this. It, it raises the confidence level. He's got an area of you know expertise and can help me navigate. And I can ask fun questions and we can learn at the same time. I can add my adult knowledge to situations that maybe he's not ready for yet as an eight-year-old within the, the framework of this you know video game metaverse, which Roblox really is. And at the same time, he can give me advice and help me to, you know, get across crazy obbies or stuff like that. And it's fun. It's an experience. You're, just, you're describing the new paradigm for education. Right? Yeah. That you just captured it, which is, and, you know, by the way, since I do a fair bit of work on, you know, in the world of work, right? Because what I did was I tied all these skills that everybody's after, you know, jobs, workforce, innovation, entrepreneurship, um, I would say the shiny objects, right? Because who doesn't want innovation? And then I linked them back to early childhood, meaning early childhood, K-12, higher ed, you see it all the way through. One of the phrases that I've come up with that people tend to like that you sort of just described is the new form of leadership. Leader is a parent, leader is the CEO of a company, whatever. And I would say we've gone from a top-down command and control, father knows best kind of approach to parenting and, and you know, corporate work and, and education. And now we've we've flipped it a bit, right? You hear in, in the education world, you hear going from sage on the stage, right? Like we're not doing sage on the stage. You're standing up there and imparting your wisdom on people, um, but that you're like flipping the classroom, right? You have the, the kids involved in it and sharing their expertise and things. But what you described, so the new form of leadership, right? That top down switching to, you know, when to stand up and take the lead, but you also know when to step back and let somebody else take the lead, even if that's your child. Um, I tell people that's a duck, duck, goose. Right. Which, again, in my way of bringing everything back to tell me how early in childhood you want to go and I'll give you something. But this idea of learning that we don't always have to be the ones with all the answers and we are just imparting our wisdom on children, because that doesn't do anything from human nature standpoint. Nobody is particularly well engaged in that scenario. Even as a pediatrician, I went into my first you know, first day as a private practice pediatrician and I quickly started to use as my favorite phrase, I don't know, but I will find out for you. And it was so shocking to people to hear a pediatrician say they didn't know because as doctors, we're like supposed to know. We study it and now we're going to go impart our wisdom. And the world is shifting. It's a shared relationship. 
people trust me. They know I'll tell them when I don't know something. Well, that does a lot for kids and parents as well, yes. right? When children see you as a person, not an all-knowing, right? Because there's nobody all-knowing. But when they see you as a person and they see the process you go through to learn something, how you step back, let somebody else show you what your process of learning is, it's teaching all those skills we talked about. Because now you got perspective taking, you've got curiosity, now you're more motivated, all of and the creativity and, and things. Those skills really come out in what you just described for how you approach Roblox with your eight-year-old. Man, <laughs> so much there, so much in my, my takeaway is there, there's so much about just modeling, being authentic and providing safe opportunities to learn, explore and fail. Like all of these things aren't what I typically think about when I think about parenting or when I think about the digital future for, for kids, but it makes so much sense. And it's such a helpful way to think about it. So thank you so much. Dr. Oh, Laura. it's my pleasure. What a fun conversation. Oh my gosh. A ton of food for thought. I mean, I, I, I we can go on for hours. We'll definitely have to have you back here on the tokens podcast. Um, but I, I, I did want to see if you had any parting thoughts or Jeff, if you had any final questions, I know that there was a lot that we wanted to go over coming into this. Um, I'll go first. I'll say the one thing that I kind of gleaned from the subtext in a lot of the conversations we've been having is that it is a, a virtue and a value um, to be worthy of trust. And in, in today's day and age and in, in where we are with the internet and social media, that, that vast ocean where there are legitimate dangers and reasonable fears, being worthy of trust is a very good thing that all of us should endeavor to do. And I, I think that's one of the best things about tokens as a company, as an application, uh, it, you know, out on the internet, on that ocean, I think it endeavors to be worthy of that trust. And I, I see great value in that. Well, and I'm going to add, it's worthy of the trust and going, whether it's required of tokens yet or not to do certain things in terms of safety or all doing it, whether you're required to or not, exactly. shows a level of commitment. The other element, and again, I don't presume to be the, I mean, I'm not a neuroscience expert. What I do is I actually, I was born and raised hard sciences, academic medicine, hard sciences, you know, um, academic teaching hospitals and universities and things. And my goal has been, how do you bring that deep level of insight, understanding, research, what we know into the hands-on practical real world that's sometimes moving faster than everything's ready for us to get it out there, right? Because academia is not known for speed and agility. And so my goal, so, so for example, whether it's me or someone else, bringing experts in from their respective fields. And I always remind people that as an advisor, I don't see my role as being a cheerleader for the company per se. I see my role as saying, I'm going to tell you what I think you should know. And sometimes it's going to be good. Like, this is great. And I'm happy to talk about it because I believe in it. But I'm also going to be the, have you thought about this, right? This is a big concern. You need to be aware of it. I mean, I toss stuff all the time. I said, here's an article that came out or a paper, or you should know about this. And you know, because I got to join in so early and you should build it into your design, which is the goal in all of this is the intentionality. Take what we know and it may change, right? Because all the evidence isn't there yet. Technology is right. moving way faster. It's so okay that's, to you know, say, I don't know, I'll find out. And yes. that's a great takeaway, great advice for anybody as a professional, as a, a CEO of a company, as a parent, be worthy of trust, endeavor to do that. Say you don't know when you don't know and find out. Right. And, 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 and accountability, where yeah. the, the combination of self-accountability, external accountability, putting in that support structure to know, to know that you have people that you can trust to give you that kind of feedback. That's why I'm just so delighted, so grateful to have you, Dr. Laura, not only today on the podcast, but as an advisor to Tokens, um, thank you so much for, for, for it all and for bringing your incredible wisdom and experience, strength and hope to what we're building here. Uh, how do people find out more? How do people get in touch? Please let us know. Yeah, well, the easiest way is my website. So drlaurajana.com, I will say now, a little bit woefully um, neglected, but that's an easy way to reach me because you can get there. Um, and then also it's got links, but you can also just search my name. So Laura Jana and TEDx. And I've actually given a couple TED Talks um, that relate to parenting and children and future success and things. So people can find those. 
And then lastly, the two books that are most specific to this sort of skills in the world we're heading into, like I've referenced, are The Toddler Brain, Nurture the Skills Today That Will Shape Your Child's Tomorrow. And then the other one, um, which again is a parenting, I mean, a parenting book in disguised as a children's book is called Jumping Into Kindergarten. Um, and that one, if people are interested, they can go to, my co-author's name is Julia Cook. So they can go to Julia Cook online. And if they put the word tokens um, in there and just put tokens eight, you can get the book for $8 on her website. I just made that up as I went along. I'll have to remember to tell her that we're doing that. But that is, <laughs> it is on Amazon as well, but that's an easy way to, uh, to find that book. And that has all the skills we've talked about, but kind of couched in a book that you could share with children. Um, and while it says jumping into kindergarten, quite honestly, you could use the same concepts as jumping into your first day at work, jumping into a new job. Doesn't matter. Yep. Definitely transferable. And that parallel kid and parent experience. Yes. So we'll make sure to include that info in the description and metadata for this episode so people can check it out. Thanks again for joining us, Dr. Laura. Really appreciate you being on the Tokens podcast today. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us as well. If you are interested in more episodes from the Tokens podcast, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast. And if you're so inclined, please give us a five-star rating simply because it helps people find us and the incredible information that we're hoping to impart to you uh, every week here. So thanks again for listening and we'll see you all next time. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric Acid. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 years of music with 50-year-old white guys. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.